Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. Hello, ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience. My name is Maurice Selby, and you are listening to the one and only Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York, the voice of Harlem. And ladies and gentlemen, I have three distinguished guests with us tonight, uh, joining us from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Dr. Folu Balagoon, and Dr. Ongi Balagoon, Assistant Professor of Radiation Oncology at Weill Cornell Medical College. They are the Onc Docs. Uh, and that's what we're going to be going into tonight, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to be, going to be talking about colorectal cancer, as it is indeed Colorectal Cancer Awareness and Prevention Month. We also have Miss Nicole Basabe. She is a coordinator at the PCOR Partnership at the City College of New York. And PCOR is the Partnership Community Outreach, Research, and Education Corps. And this is a joint partnership between the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and City College of New York, my alma mater. So we definitely got to shout you out on that. <laughs> uh, thank you for joining us. And we're just going to talk about some resources as well uh, when it comes to screening. That's probably the most important thing, ladies and gentlemen. If you take away anything from tonight's program, uh, the importance of screening, especially when we talk about colorectal cancer, uh, it is just so paramount. And so I want to thank you all for joining us on a Thursday night, man. <laughs> it's our pleasure yeah. for having us. Uh, and so, ladies and gentlemen, I know you're probably thinking like, yo, you guys talked about this not too long ago. Yes, we did on Health in Harlem, uh, September of last year, just after the passing of Chadwick Bozeman. We did touch upon this topic also at that time. Me, personally, I was actually going for my screening colonoscopy. Uh, that's why we touched on that. But it's such an important topic. And now we have two experts to join us so we can really dive in deep and just uh, really arm ourselves with some important information. Colon cancer is the third most common cancer worldwide for both men and women. Uh, we have seen the incidence of this disease for individuals over the age of 50, the good thing is that it's been decreasing since 1991. However, the recent trend, and I think this is something that we really need to just understand, the recent trend, we've seen younger and younger individuals being diagnosed with this disease. Why that's the case, we're still trying to figure that out. I think uh, we'll see if uh, Dr. the D doctors Balagoon can uh, help us in, in maybe hashing some of that stuff out. But uh, you know, that's one thing that is definitely a fact right now is that the incidents or the number of cases that we're seeing in younger individuals is increasing. 
And uh, another thing that is really empowering that we need to understand is that this is among the most treatable cancers there is. And so with that said, I'm going to just turn it over and, and get you guys in there. So real fast, though, you guys are the second couple in a row uh, that we've had on Health in Harlem. We had a, a dental special uh, just last week. So you guys are the second in a row, uh, the second couple, special specialist couple to come on. Nice. That's the first in the in the history of the programs. We're in good company. Yeah, yeah, for real, for real. Yeah, so my name is Folu Balugun, and I'm an oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering, focusing on GI cancers. I do see uh, a lot of people with colorectal um, cancer, so this is something that's uh, near and dear to me. And obviously, there's a disproportionate effect of colon cancer in terms of whites versus uh, non-Hispanic Blacks, so that mm. makes it even more important to me. And I'm Oninye Balogun. I'm a radiation oncologist, and I focus primarily on women's health, but I do have experience treating uh, gastrointestinal cancers. And, you know, we also do some global health work, and we've seen globally this trend of colorectal cancers happening in younger and younger um, population. So we really need to get the word out because people tend to think of cancer as something that happens to the elderly, but mm -hmm. we cannot let our younger populations or younger adults be caught off guard. It's really uh, a significant issue of our time. And you guys were just uh, adamant and, and Nicole as well, Miss Basabe was, was adamant about getting you guys on, right? Because it's colorectal cancer awareness month right out the out the out the bat like what is it that we really need to understand when it comes to uh this particular disease entity why is it so important that we sort of just have this this knowledge other than knowing that right we we're losing some of our heroes what is it about this particular cancer versus some of the other things that are lurking out there so there was something you touched on which is key in terms of this being one of the highly treatable cancers it's one of the cancers that in a lot of cases, we can see it before it becomes cancer and we take it out, we prevent the cancer from forming. That's not something we have, an ability we have for so many cancers. And the, if you can stop it from happening before it even happens, you spare yourself from so many things, surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, and all the stress that comes with having cancer. So that's, so the ability to screen Mm -hmm. and that is very important with colorectal cancer. Yeah. I, I mean, I'd also add that in addition to being able to catch it early, this is a cancer that we've identified some factors that you can modify in your lifestyle that could mm. help. So it's, it's not that we know exactly precisely for all cases what caused the cancer, but there's certain um, things that you can change in your lifestyle that can decrease your risk for colorectal cancer. So we want people to know those things. I can begin with some of them, including obesity, right? Being heavier than your, you would ideally want to be uh, increases your risk, not just for colorectal cancer, but for, you know, I think over 10 other cancers. So in general, you want to try and uh, maintain a healthy weight. Uh, the other thing that we know you can modify is your diet. So people have seen that a diet high in uh, red meats. I love red meat. I won't lie to I'm you. 
Look, I second, I, I second that. And this guy next to me loves red meat, so I'm not one of oh, those. Yeah. We're not one of you know those doctors who say do as I say, not as I do. We mm-hmm. do try to keep everything in moderation. So that's a big motto of ours. You don't have to starve yourself. You don't have to take on like a very drastic diet, but everything in moderation. So you don't eat red meats every single day of the week, switch it up, add some fish, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, add some white meats. Also when it comes to fiber. So when we're talking about fiber, you know, we, we don't yet know exactly which sources of fiber are best or when they should be consumed, but it's, it's good to just have a well-balanced diet. Um, that's, you know, where you don't eat too many, uh, processed meats like sausages, hot dogs, um, but, and where you don't eat too much red meat, uh, but where you're trying to get fruits, vegetables, fiber sources into your diet. So those are some of the things that we know can be, uh, controlled when it comes to colorectal cancer risk. And when we talk about, maybe just to get a little bit more detail on, on, in terms of the dietary fiber intake, what exactly are we talking about as far as the foods? I know you said we're not sure which fibers, but just in general as a food group, what are some of those, what, what does it consist of? You can get fiber through multiple sources. So um, sometimes we're talking about grains. Okay, so that could be a source of fiber. Uh, we could also talk about, um, you know, leafy vegetables. That could also be a source of fiber. So we don't know exactly, like I said, sources, but leafy vegetables, um, grains, those can be sources of fiber. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's what I would encourage people to try to, to eat. And as an example in that regard, something that we've done over time to change it, because it's hard to flip your diet over, overnight is... Say, for example, with bread, I just buy, all we buy is whole grain bread. So mm-hmm. while you're limiting the amount of bread you take, you're not taking too many slices. But if you're making sure that all of it is whole grain, you're increasing the amount of fiber you get. So it's putting it into everything you do. The snacks that we get, we especially for our kids, the amount mm-hmm. of fiber in there is something that's of importance too. Another one is with fruits. You know, stay away from the fruit juice they always talk about because it's just sugar. But mm-hmm. when you actually take the orange and you actually eat, eat the orange by itself, you get fiber from that. So mm-hmm. every little thing, if you're just keeping in mind that I'm trying to get the fiber and you just don't essentially take the short court, you'll, you'll get you get more fiber without I'm you on that. automatically changing your diet. Mm. And you get the biggest bang for your buck. I'm with you. And, and, and it's taking some time. But I'll, I'll throw out there just some of the things that we've done w- in my family. Yeah. Um, and I remember, you know, one thing that was hard to get away from was like the instant oatmeal and that stuff tastes good. I'm not going to front. Back in the day, right? The brown sugar and the, the yes. oats and the spices and the cinnamon. In it. And I was like, you know, but then I realized like you could put that stuff in your oatmeal, like whether it's honey or, um, you know, other sugars that have maybe a lower. And we talked about this, ladies and gentlemen, the glycemic index, right? sugars that can that will not spike your blood sugar as much and and this way you're getting those whole grains and actually at a probably cheaper price when you actually do the math and bring it throw your own little raisins in there sprinkle a couple of raisins or i like the um apple juice infused cherries or something i know it's, I'm, i get a mess with it man but I, but i have fun at the same time and like you know aside from just possibly decreasing the risk of developing something like a colorectal yeah. cancer is that you get health benefits uh, for multiple 
potential diseases. So I'm with you 1000%. And it took some time though. That's the thing. I'm glad that you said that, Dr. Ongi, and that, uh, right, it's not an overnight thing. And we're not just telling you to do things that <laughs> that we're not doing or that yeah. are exceedingly difficult. It's just, we have to make these changes, Yeah. Um, these modifiable risk factors. We should get something trending like the oatmeal challenge or something, you know, mm. or, or just the, the fruit challenge. I'm so, down. You know, you know <laughs> mindful, be mindful about your eating. When you go to the store to shop, right? When If you have it in your house, I know this. If you have it in your house, you're more likely to be tempted to eat it. So when mm. you go to the store, rather than getting the instant oatmeal, take a pause, get the, get the nice oats, the proper oats. Yeah. And, and then, you know, you can add things to it, mix it up, have fun. Or when you're in the store, I know I know it can be expensive, right? That's one issue that people can True. sometimes come against. Trying to find fresh fruits and vegetables can be expensive. Maybe you can get creative, find some coupons, just do something because it will have an impact on a, a significant impact on your lifestyle. Uh, and, and as far as additional modifiable risk factors, so you know things as as far as the use of substances or alcohol, smoking. Any of those things sort of factor into this as well? Oh, yes, absolutely. Smoking, just off the bat, smoking, you should just try to stop because it does increase the risk of several cancers, head and neck cancers, lung cancers. It's one of those things where we have the evidence. So use it, look at lung cancer, the rate of decline in lung cancer, which is still the highest um, mortality cause of cancer deaths, but the rate of decline is associated with the rate of decline in smoking and tobacco. So it just, if we cut back on that, you cut back on a lot of cancers, yeah. including colon cancer. With alcohol, we're not saying you should stop, but it has to be in moderation. And when we say moderation, you think of it as maximum, one drink a day for a woman, two drinks a day for a man. And I try to say, when I do counsel um, patients, I do say, try to keep it below that. You know, mm. because I'm telling you this is the limit you get to, you know, it doesn't mean you have to stay at the limit because you're pushing it. It's all a gradient. It's not like you automatically go from zero risk to mm -hmm. 20% risk when you go over two drinks. There's a gradient. So try to keep below those numbers. Well, some people may think, well, if it's two, the doctor <laughs> is saying, you know, I could take two a day for a week, you know, that's 14. How about I just come on the weekend and just down 10 <laughs> drinks in one day? <laughs> no, 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 no. When you, at yeah. a time, you shouldn't take more than four because then you start to have yeah. significant risk. So if yeah. you're not someone who drinks at all and maybe you go to a party or something and you mm -hmm. have a few drinks and you get to like three, four in one day, in one sitting, and you know, you're starting to get to that point where it's it's binge drinking that can actually increase your risk of cancer. So those are mm -hmm. things that smoking you should definitely stop. And I like to tell people that 99.999% of people do not stop smoking cold turkey. It's very rare. It's a biological thing because you smoke and there are changes in your brain that are resulting from the chemicals that are in the smoke and cigarettes. So you need... Mm -hmm help to reverse those changes. You can't just like will your way and tell your body, you're going to stop. You're going to stop feeling these feelings, but it's, it just doesn't work like that. So whether it's the patch or there's some specific medications that have been shown to be very effective with it, <laughs> but talk to your doctor and just stop the, the smoking. We have to stop. With alcohol, you can do in moderation. And I think with smoking, setting a specific date 
right? Because people say, yeah, I'm mm. going to stop. But you, sometimes, you want to set a date. And it's the people who say, this is the date when I'm going to stop. So just be realistic with yourself. Can you stop smoking tomorrow? Cool. Make that commitment. But mm-hmm. if you, you know, backpedal and you start smoking again, just set another date. But it's the people who are persistent and try that are going to reap those health benefits when they finally stop smoking. And, uh, and ladies and gentlemen, I remember reading this, this was a couple of years ago, I believe in 2018, it appeared in the New York Times initially, from what I remember, and they just went into briefly, it was an article about the World Health Organization's recommendations for drinking alcohol. And it was like, oh, you know, what is the safest level, right? If there's a level, a minimum level that you can drink and not have any increased risk of any complications, what is that level? I'm sad to say it was... Zero. (laughs) They just, I was like, wait, this is a cop out, man. But I mean, you know, you do, I guess you do take some risk, but the lower the intake is, and that's the thing I feel like everybody would be like, well, moderation, you know, I can put them down like pretty quickly (laughs) and not have a problem. Like, no, no, Um, you know, we got to really scale back. Um, And as Dr. Folu uh, said, was that right? Talking about two drinks for a male, and we're talking about, as far as the ounces, any particular um, guidance on how much in, in terms of ounces? Yeah, so there are standard definitions. I can't remember off the, off the top of my head, but there are standard definitions for everything in terms of the alcohol. So like a shot, when you talk mm-hmm. liquor, a shot is a cup, not like, you know, say like a Long Island iced tea. That's mm-hmm. not that's not a drink. That's a, that has like four or five shots in it. That's True like story, yeah. The top. So got it. Not a drink. If you're, it's a shot like a glass of wine, classic glass of wine, not the one where you fill it to the top. Got it. That's not a drink. And I think just a regular beer, like the four percent, twelve ounce bottle. That's a drink. If you're doing like the big, um, the bigger size bottle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, forty ounce. That's that's like three drinks already in it. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Or the malt liquor and stuff. Oh boy. So yeah, it's just, you know, this is the thing is that we really need to focus on just sort of how much we take in yeah. um, as an individual and really as much as we can cut back. And it is possible. And I can testify to that the whole thing with my story and, and COVID and stuff. And my wife was pregnant at the time and I went like eight months. <laughs> this is, wow. you know, this is different from smoking, right? But um, the entire duration of her pregnancy, and that was a, a pact between us. But the same willpower that it would take, right, to make a conscious change uh, for health reasons in your life, it can be done. That's that's all I want to get out there is that it can be done. Maurice was out here. Why didn't you do that for our pregnancies? Oh, (laughs) my bad. I was was helping you. Right. Right. I I know all the the brothers out there are probably like this jerk. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. So, so let's get into what are we seeing with this discrepancy that we're seeing? Um, you mentioned that non-Hispanic blacks, right, suffering disproportionately when it comes to the incidence or the development of colon cancer, colorectal cancers. Uh, what is behind that? Do we have any idea as to what that is? What's going on there? Well, I think you know 
there are multiple factors. Um, we see this also in, unfortunately, we see these, what we call disparities or inequities. The, the fact that non-Hispanic Blacks are more likely to die of a certain cancer uh, across multiple diseases, but we definitely see it in colorectal cancer. And part of it is, um, you know, preventative activities like the colonoscopies. You know, Folu was saying earlier, if you, let's say you don't have insurance, right? You don't have insurance to go for your regular colonoscopies. Um, we're not going to find the cancer at an early stage or the pre-cancer, uh, and you'll come in with more advanced disease, which is more difficult to treat. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, socioeconomic factors like, you know, do you have insurance? Do you have a, a primary health care provider, right? Do you have someone who who will say, hey, when I see you, have you, what you know, you're due for your colonoscopy. Things like that are part of the reason why we believe there are differences. We're also exploring uh, whether there are genetic uh, differences, um, underlying differences. So people who are of African descent, we're trying to study, you know, are there certain things within changes within their tumors that might not be seen in other tumors, you know, tumors um, that are seen in Caucasian individuals or individuals of, um, you know, Asian descent. So one of our colleagues at Memorial Sloan Kettering, uh, Dr. Peter Kingham, we work with him to do some global projects and, and his group looked at some Nigerian specimens and saw that there was a higher there was a higher propensity for those tumors to have certain changes. So we need to do a lot more investigation in, you know, black individuals in the America, in America and elsewhere across the diaspora for us to really understand what kind of genetic changes may be happening. So I was going to essentially emphasize that we should, the way we find out this information is by learning more about what's going on in black people underrepresented minority groups because a lot of information we have are from white Caucasians in America and we typically tend to apply that across so there's more effort now to try to learn about what's going on in everyone and I also wanted to add that another thing that contributes to disparity is education which is a big part of what this show is about right yes you have to educate people that screening is important this is stuff you have to look for. You have to do this to look out and prevent the cancer from happening. Because if you do more screening, if we do more screening, we'll catch a lot of these cancers earlier. And it, it does show that the disproportionately affected populations, like for example, the black non-Hispanics, mm-hmm. they have le- lower levels of screening, of colon cancer screening. And if we can increase those numbers, that would close the disparity gap a bit more. And education does a big part of that. And one thing education does is it empowers you. So you come up to your doctor and you say, hey, you know, I'm having some symptoms. And maybe they're like, oh, it doesn't sound like it's a big deal. But if you have some education and know that, for example, the things we talk about here, about what to look Mm -hmm. out for, you're like, you know what? I remember that, you know, they said that thing on radio that if there's bleeding, I should be worried. So you can really talk to another person or insist. And eventually your doctor would say, okay, you know, let's take a look. And really the people, some people get diagnosed like that and really get saved. Got it. And I just wanted to add, um, 
along the lines of what he was saying before, I think I'm very encouraged that there's a lot of interest in studying, you know, these populations who tend to have worse outcomes. So I recently joined an initiative called the P1000. It's out of the New York Genome Center. And we're looking at, we have seven projects that we just funded looking at, you know, why are outcomes worse for Black women with breast cancer, Black men with prostate cancer? Mm. We also have a project looking at um, Black patients who have colorectal cancer. So I think the scientific community is starting to wake up to that. And so hopefully we'll have some answers because like we mentioned, Chadwick Boseman, that was like a knife to the heart. Mm. Um, I think it was the lady who was on Moesha also, was, was she, did she pass from colorectal cancer? So we've, lost a lot of people in the community and we need answers. We need to move things forward. And one thing too, um, just going back to what she had mentioned, right? There are certain symptoms of these diseases that could arise. And one point that we made the last program that we did talking about colorectal cancers is that, you know, just like we talk about hypertension, you know, some other diseases that are quote unquote silent, right? Silent killers, I would put this in that category because a lot of times, once you have any of these symptoms, and they can be very vague, right? It could be just abdominal discomfort. You can actually have pain in the region of, in the abdomen or throughout your abdomen. You could have diarrhea or blood in a stool and sort of the most alarming case, right? That would definitely get somebody to, um, to me in the emergency department, right? Where we can we only have limited capabilities in terms of figuring out what the cause of that is. But a lot of times there are no symptoms. There are no symptoms until it is a pretty advanced at advanced stages. And really the goal, as as our experts have been saying, right, um, just now before us is to get it before you have any of that stuff, before you have any bleeding or bloating or constipation, weight loss, you know, all of these these symptoms is let's just nip it in the bud and get rid of it altogether before we even get anywhere near that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to add to that, just like we say changes in your bowel movements. So mm-hmm. let's say you don't see blood, right? But your stools, right? Your your stools mm-hmm. are thinner. If you notice any change in, in how your your stools normally are, and pay attention to that stuff, you know? Yes. Um, if you notice a change, you're not overreacting. And I know it's a sensitive area to be talking about the backside and to be thinking about someone, you know, doing that kind of procedure, looking inside. People, sometimes there's embarrassment, you know, and Mm -hmm. and you don't want someone sticking something in your backside. But if you notice a change, it's very worthwhile for you to go in for the proper screening. And before you notice a change, let's talk about before there are any symptoms, right? There's mm-hmm. certain um, criteria we now have for who should get screening. So in general, we're saying that people, right, 45, if, you're, if you've hit the age of 45, you should start your uh, colorectal screening. So you don't have to have symptoms, you know, to all the time to go. If you have symptoms, definitely go in. But just off the top, 45 years old, you know, it's time for you to celebrate but it's also time to start getting those colonoscopies. It was and really- celebrate as in that one four ounce glass of uh, <laughs> Just wine. That, oh, that-, <laughs> that shot. It's a tiny but then-, <laughs> but, uh, then you go to get your colonoscopy. But you were going to say, sorry, Dr. Bob. <laughs> I was going to say it was recently 
reduced from 50 to 45 because some mm. people still have in their mind that it's 50, but in the last couple of years it was brought down to 45. And um, there are some things that would actually mm. point to you getting it earlier or sooner. Some risk factors that put you at higher risk. So average risk person, no colon cancer in your family, no genetic diseases or no like, oh, you know what? I noticed a couple of people in my family had cancer. You know, if you had nobody at all, the average risk. Mm-hmm. If you're having any of those high risk features, someone in your family is having colon cancer younger than 60 years old, then you have mm. to get it sooner. And if you have more than one person, then you have to get it at the age of 40. Another important one is if one person in your family has the first, the col- is diagnosed with colon cancer, for example, at an age younger than 50, then you have to, everyone else has to get their colonoscopy 10 years before that. And I'll give you an example. Someone comes in 30, 35 with colon cancer. Everyone in that family that's 25 and above should get a colonoscopy. Mm. Once you 10 years before they were diagnosed. Yes, 10 years before, before that person was diagnosed. So the person came in at 35 years old was diagnosed. 10 years before that is 25. So that's the new, that's the threshold for everyone in that family. Got it. And um, and when you think of how long it takes when you see it when it's still a, it's not yet cancer to develop into cancer, mm-hmm. on average for some of them it's about 10 years. So that's why you want to catch it early before it becomes cancer. But this this screening and this education about this is is key. And I'll tell you the the power in that you know when I went in. So I had my colonoscopy last September. Initially, I was scheduled before the whole COVID craziness. But every time I went in for a consultation to get ready for this, they would look at me like, "Wait, why are you here? What's going on?" And I would tell them like, "Hey, my father passed away right at forty six years of age. I think, and I wasn't even sure when he was diagnosed." Because I didn't know until the late stages um, uh, before he passed, but uh, I estimated it was around you know forty five, forty four, and so as soon as I told my my doctors that my gastroenterologist, they looked at me like, yes, you have to like this is a must. We got to do this, uh, even though there was one polyp. I'm still I still have to go back yeah. um, in the next year. But that is the point, ladies and gentlemen. Right, is that my risk in comparison to everyone else, just off of my family history, my father, first degree relative, right? I have to go in to get this done. Like it's a must. Just of note, what what Dr. Balagun had mentioned was, right, that polyp taking 10 years, right? That thing is gone, right? I don't have to worry about it anymore. Yep. Yep. Um, And you're, uh, first of all, I'm sorry that you suffered that loss, but that's the power of knowing your family history, right? Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes- it's understandable. You're diagnosed with cancer. Many people just want to keep it private, but I would encourage people to, as it's appropriate or as they feel comfortable, it mm-hmm. is so important to share with your family because, right, we've seen that it it changes when you should begin screening, right? Also, if there, there's certain connections that we can make. So most colorectal cancers are not due to changes in the genetic information inside of you that was passed from person to person, Mm. but like 5% are, you know? And so if you come to see a doctor and you tell them, well, you know, such and such a person had cancer of the uterus, and then such and such a person also had colorectal cancer. That can tip us off because there's a mm. something called hereditary non-polyposis um, 
you know, uh, colorectal cancer. Basically, you, your family can inherit certain changes in your genetic information that are passed down from person to person that make you guys much, much more likely of developing colon cancer. So, you know, the average person by the time they're 70, you know, has maybe what, like a 2% risk of colon cancer or so. For these individuals, it's 80%. Mm. So Got it. you okay. have to know your family history. And the other um, genetic thing that can be passed down is something called familial adenomatous polyposis. So basically FAP. So that's another change in your family's genetic information that can be passed from person to person. And that leads you to be more likely to form uh, polyps in your colon, which can become cancerous. So by knowing and sharing your family history, it's going to impact usually when people start to get uh, colonoscopies um, and just help the doctor say, hey, I think you guys need to go for genetic testing to make sure that if there are these syndromes, then we can better advise everyone else. I like to, I would take it down a little notch more when I talk, when I advise my patients about these genetic mutations. I, I first start off as, when you think of genes, when I'm mentioning genes, genetics is the blueprint that yeah. tells your body what to do, how to make itself. Jay Z reference it from each other. <laughs> the blueprint. I love that album, by the way. Oh my god, I was, was listening to it last week. It was a classic. <laughs> um, they they tell me that you remember the first time you heard, where you were the first time you heard that album. I, I definitely remember where I was. <laughs> That's what's up. <laughs> but um, but the this blueprint, the genes. When there's a mistake in them, it can get passed on from parents to children and within families. And that just increases your risk of different cancers. And um, like the, with one for the Lynch syndrome, the HNPCC, very mm -hmm. big for colon cancer. Mm -hmm. The one that's most commonly known is the BRCA because it increases the risk mm -hmm. of breast cancer. And people, you hear BRCA and people know, okay, I think I get what you're talking about there. That also increases the risk of colon mm -hmm. cancer in some instances. Mm. So these are all things that when you talk, it's not just, oh, you know, I don't have anyone with colon cancer, so it doesn't matter. But even the uterine cancer, like yeah. when he said, wow. they all, some of them connect. Yeah. And you just tell, make sure you communicate with your doctor. And we'll try to connect those dots and get the right uh, recommendations for you. So when we talk about misconceptions um, that we hear, especially in communities of color, um, and especially when we talk about the sort of history of abuse and exploitation uh, by the medical and scientific community, what are some of the things that we're hearing out there um, from your patients, maybe in your experience at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center? Um, and also, Miss uh, Basabe, anything that you've gathered sort of um, with your ear to the street and stuff, hearing, you know, sort of the concerns out there, what are some of the things that people are, are talking about uh, when it comes to colorectal cancer, but even just cancer in general? I think one of the things I've heard um, is that we have the cure for cancer, but we're withholding it. And that really, it hurts, you know, but I, I can understand why people might think, you know, cancer has been around for so many centuries. We've known about it for ages. So why don't we have a cure for cancer. Um, and it's complicated. Cancer is not just one disease. Um, and the thing is that cancer can change. It can, it's, it's, it's smart, unfortunately, in that it, if you give it a certain drug, some of them 
you know, respond. And some say, oh, I don't like this job. Let me change myself so I can avoid, I, I don't get impacted by this. So I just ask people to be patient with us. I think some of the other misconceptions that people have might be that some people think that if you come to the hospital, that's going to worsen your outcomes, you know, in some settings. But honestly, I think, you know, my husband and I try to be, we're the biggest advocates for people. You know, we know the significance of walking in and seeing, you know, a, a Black physician. And that's part mm-hmm. of why we came into medicine. So you can trust that, you know, we will be watching out for you, trying to do what's in your best interests, uh, making sure that we think of everything possible for you. And also, you know, our colleagues, medicine is a slog, you know, so most individuals go there wanting to do positive uh, work. But I completely understand people's concerns given, you know, the experimentation that has happened and Mm -hmm. the, the exploitation and the, you know, racism that continues to happen. It's not history. It's happening in the present day too. So what's the story? Yeah, us and our colleagues are just continuing to try to advocate for anyone who walks through our doors so that we give them the best care possible. And it's it's important to advocate for yourself too, in terms of if you if something is concerning to you and you feel like you're not being heard, mm-hmm. you you keep you keep talking or you keep asking around till someone hears you. And when I say you're not being heard, is in terms of I, I do have patients who would tell me, you know, I feel like I've been having this abdominal pain for a couple of years and I've been going mm. in to see the doctor and they just kind of belittled it like it's nothing. And now I'm seeing you with metastatic cancer, you know. Mm. They feel like they were done wrong. And it's not it's not in her it's not in their mind. These are things that really happen. But you have to advocate for yourself. Get for make sure someone listens to you. Find someone who would listen to you. Something that came to my mind when he said people feel like you come to the hospital, you get worse. I've had many people say, I feel like everything's like dark. Every time I feel like I come here, it's like another problem you're finding. And I'm like, so it's not like we're creating the problems. Sometimes we're unearthing or we're identifying little problems before they become big. So that year of when I go to the hospital, I'm afraid that they'll find something. It's If there's something there, you want it to be found early. So yes. try to not be avoiding a doctor because of that fear. And we thank you for uh, the segue into my weekly plug. This is what we do every week on Health in Harlem. I know all of this. They probably know exactly what I'm going to say now. But that's the importance of having right a relationship with a primary care provider, whether it is a physician, a primary care physician, it is your physician assistant or nurse practitioner, somebody that is looking after your health um, week after week. And that can get you the help that you need. So if you are having that abdominal bloating or pain that's been there for a couple of months, um, we need to get you to a specialist. We need to get you to Dr. Balagoon so they can take a look, right, um, and see what's going on. Or make sure that you're aware of your screening colonoscopy for 45. um, Dr. Balagoon can say, hey, happy 45th birthday. (laughs) Let's schedule your your, um, colonoscopy. Um, I mean, if that's what it takes. Uh, really come into to us before you have a problem, you know, which I, I guess I don't have that luxury being in the ER, but, uh, but still, I'm, I'm always there if you have a problem, but, uh, yes, that's, that's the key is really this preventive aspect to care, um, get in there before it is a, a major problem. And one thing we just wanted to quickly touch on are conditions 
we talked about the inherited ones and things. There are also uh, diseases like ulcerative colitis, um, mm. Crohn's disease, if it involves the colon. So if, if you know someone who has it, you know, talk to your friend or if you have it, because they need to begin their, their screening, I think about eight years after the initial diagnosis or so. So it's much earlier, you know, and it's, it's more frequent than it is for the individual who has no risk factors. So those are other things that hopefully people can take away from this tonight. And following up, your primary care doctor would keep an eye on that. That's exactly. Your, so like you said, Maurice, like if you're keeping up with your primary care doctor, those, these early screening things, that's, they'll, they'll cover it. My, my hope and my goal is that you don't get to see me because obviously <laughs> yes. by the time you see me, then the cancer is done already. So yeah. mm. I'd rather you just see your primary care doctor, see the GI doctor, they do the colonoscopy, yes. take stuff out and just go back and forth and never see me. You can see me on the streets, you know, we'll say what's up, but I'd rather you not see me in clinic. <laughs> Got it. But you're always there though. If I'm always there though. I'm always, <laughs> there. I'm always there if you need me. <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, this is, this is just so, so crucial. Um, as far as, uh, when it comes to outreach, um, Ms. Basabe, what, what can we do as far as, um, making sure that this gets out, right. And especially, um, in empowering our listeners, right. Hopefully I think we've got it in everybody's head that they need to sort of be advocates for their own health. Right. Um, and also know your family history, get a colonoscopy, um, for screening for colorectal cancers, but let's say somebody wants to go and sort of um, get more information for themselves or bring information to their family and community, uh, what sort of resources are out there? And what are you guys doing, I guess, at, at PCOR? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so definitely something that the doctors brought up that we've really been um, dealing with this past couple of months has been the medical mistrust and really addressing that and having community members be the ones educating other community members about what's going on. It's really key to empower community members to feel comfortable enough to discuss all of this and have these conversations with your families. So we've really been educating and working with members. Like today, we actually had an event earlier Um, about colorectal cancer and also healthy living. We had two events today. Um, And we've been really trying to navigate people to make the screening appointments or even discuss with a counselor about making little nutritional habits changes. So with PCOR, we we do partner with um, the Ralph Lauren Center in Harlem. So we do offer free cancer screenings for colorectal cancer, for breast cancer, cervical cancer, and prostate cancer right now. And we also partner with other um, public health New York hospitals to also offer like the screenings as well as um, different organizations in New Jersey and Connecticut. But most of our work really is in education Mm -hmm. and getting community members to really rally with other community members to get them screened. That's the, the part of our work really. So if somebody wanted more resources or like information or at least to, to get more information on their own, maybe from online or something, uh, is there a place they can go? Yes. So we are actually um, online. So we have our PCOR partnership page. Um, I believe right now it's actually under 
renovation, but it should usually it's the PCOR MSKCC slash CCNY.org um, page. Mm -hmm. And also the email that you can contact us is H-E-R-N-A-N-R5 at MSKCC.org. So that's R 5 at MSKCC.org. And I, I promise, ladies and gentlemen, I will incorporate that into the show notes. Um, so no memory required, right? Just focus on uh, what we're talking about tonight. It is, it is, it is just critically important um, that we really get into that. So I think we do have to, um, at some point, really just talk about, right, the worst case scenario for an individual that is, right, if we don't catch um, colorectal cancer in its early stages or even before it becomes cancer by nipping a, a polyp away, sort of what options are there? How do we go about sort of treating um, and supporting an individual with this diagnosis? Because I think one thing that definitely can happen is that, right, you do have the people out there that are like, hey, well, I'm going to die from something, right? So what's the point uh, in all of this? And what is, you know, if they if they feel like they are going to get worse, right? You mentioned that people think they're going to get worse coming to the hospital. So what is on the table in far, as far as treating and supporting these individuals that ultimately, right, there will be some people coming down with a diagnosis of colorectal cancer? It's essentially in three buckets. Mm -hmm. you have your surgery, you have your radiation, and you have your chemotherapy. Depending on how advanced the cancer is when it's diagnosed, if it's not too advanced, we still have a, a good chance of cure, whereby we're going, we take it out, get some chemotherapy and radiation, and the disease is cured. It is not, I mean, the way I say it, it seems like it's just bang, bang, bang. It's mm -hmm. definitely, it's a marathon. I like to describe it as a marathon. But throughout the thing is you have a team with you throughout the whole process, both your family and social support, and also even the medical team that will be with you throughout this journey. If it is advanced beyond the point of where we can actually cure it, if it has left its primary site, doesn't mean all hope is lost either. There are treatments we can give to extend life and still maintain a good quality of life because that's something that's important. You don't just want to extend life whereby you're in bed all day, every day. It's not, it's not what people want. People want to be able to move around and care for themselves and do things. With every case of colon cancer, right from when we're talking about screening, even when it's been diagnosed, the sooner you get you get plugged in and get care, the better, the more chances, the more options of treatment you have. Mm -hmm. As the disease progresses, you have less and less options. Things start to fall off the table. But So as soon as anything bothers you or you feel like this may be something wrong, just go in and get it checked out and diagnosed. And we'll do, we'll do that we can treat more and do more with our treatments early mm -hmm. on than later on. And I think, you know, some of the, again, it's education because those are the three main buckets, right? Surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, but we're making advanced, we're making advances, right? In cancer care and within the past five years, immunotherapy, basically drugs that help rev up your immune system to fight the cancer, they've come to the forefront as well. So it's, even if you have, um, you know, disease that's more advanced, that's larger or has spread outside of the colon or the rectum, 
you may have an opportunity if if we test your tumor and we see that it it can benefit from immunotherapy that's something else so make sure to discuss with your doctor about what else they can do for you is immunotherapy an option what about you know a shorter course of radiation that's one of the things that we've started to look at um, before we we gave everyone about you know 25 to 28 treatments for rectal cancer we don't use uh, radiation as much for colon cancers but discuss with your doctor is just getting five treatments an option for you and also discuss with them clinical trials because that's how we move things forward and speaking of misconceptions i think people are hesitant to be on clinical trials because they don't want to be guinea pigs right and and i think the concerns are again warranted given the history of what's happened with uh, racism in medicine but this is how we move the field forward. And what we're finding is that uh, especially um, Black individuals are underrepresented in these clinical trials. So we bring it and we say, okay, is this applicable to everyone? Yes, we're all human, but are there certain differences or changes? We want to make sure that when we're testing a drug, it reflects the populations that we see. So I would really encourage people to ask about, you know, innovations, clinical trials. Um, your doctor hopefully should tell you, but if they don't offer it, ask them, say, are there any clinical trials that I'm eligible for? Because it may be that that could be, there could be something for you. And also you're doing future generations a favor by participating and helping us to learn from from you if you're if you're uncomfortable with the clinical trials have an open mind you, there's information for you to re read and learn about each specific trial so your doctor would explain it to you ask the questions and you can even go home and read some of the information yeah clinical trials do allow you to access cutting edge treatments that's not available yet we learn about the disease, but the one thing clinical trials cannot do and should never do, because it's wrong, and there are more guidelines now or more strict rules, is to give you less than standard of care. Mm -hmm. So you should not, on a clinical trial, be getting treated less than what's just regularly available as standard of care. So you should be getting at least the regular level of care plus or minus more. And one other thing that I would I would add to that is um, I can't imagine, right, the fear if you are having some of these concerning symptoms, because I, I've definitely seen that and uh, have had individuals sort of uh, in the emergency department that have, you know, and I'm like, wait, why didn't you see someone sooner about this? And they're like, you know, I was afraid. The fear. So the fear is so is, is so huge. But don't please don't let that be sort of the thing that prevents you from seeking uh, some sort of help because the only way, the only way that you can find out what options are available to you is by seeing someone. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's the only thing is that you just can't, there are no options. You won't have any option if you don't go in to seek help um, or at least was, and you have every right to refuse. You could say, well, I don't want surgery. I don't want chemotherapy or radiation yeah. or an experimental therapy but you would have those options potentially available to you um, or not if you don't seek any sort of help or, or consultation. One thing I wanted to mention too was um, kind of taking us back to screening. 
Mm-hmm. I know that people were hesitant about colonoscopy, and you probably hear about this, but even if you're hesitant about that, you can. There are other screening methods where you just test your stool. You don't have to do a colonoscopy up front. And you can test your stool. If it's negative, you're good for another year. You keep doing that. So whatever kind of whatever format you're comfortable with, just make sure you get the screening done. And there's several different ones. It doesn't have to be a colonoscopy off the bat, although that's the gold standard. But there are others that are very good, close to it. Got it. And I'll drop links actually to that uh, as well. And I have to do another plug, right, for the um, prior program because we definitely talked about that screening too, um, the stool screenings. Um, but again, you won't have those options available to you without seeking some sort of help um, and at least just having this information. And so with that said, I would say the last thing that I have for you all w- would be really if there's any message that an individual is to take home or sort of sleep on and go on and share, hopefully, what would that message be? Or what would, what would be that, that big take home point um, on this program? Control what you can control. That's making sure that you, your diet, right? Trying to get exercise, smoking, the drinking back to the four ounces, and then also establishing care with a, a physician and making sure that you do the health activities, 45 years old, um, go get a colonoscopy, or if you have other risk factors, discuss with your doctor when you should start. So control what you can control. That That's for that's what I would say. I would say knowledge is power. So knowing it, and this ties into what you just said too, Maurice, in terms of when you know your options, you can decide, you can make an informed decision on, all right, I know all the things that are my options and I can decide I want or not surgery or I want or not chemo or I want or I don't want a trial. But you're making that decision from a point of you knowing what that exactly means. Mm -hmm. Knowledge is always power. Also goes back to screening, knowing if there is this lesion in the colon that if you leave it there, it will become cancer. That knowledge, you can only get it from your screening. You do your screening, you find that out and you take it out and you don't have to deal with having cancer. So learn as much as you can in taking all this information and use it to protect your health. And I think for me, um, not only getting screened regularly and frequently, as frequently as you're supposed to be getting screened, but also keeping your physical exams, all of your other preventive appointments. And also I think we encounter, at least me personally, um, we encounter a lot of participants in our programs that have the conversations about family, like the medical history with their families after they have been diagnosed. So really having those conversations prior and being open with the medical history is really crucial, again, because knowledge is power. And it is such an important fact to know um, so that you can know when you should be getting screened and when your family members and or loved ones should be getting screened. Ladies and gentlemen, y'all heard it from the best, man. I want to thank you all. And real fast, I want to throw out one thing too to take home. So with the oatmeal, right? When you throw it in the pot, (laughs) you get to that last bit, let the water almost boil, almost boil away. Throw a little bit of milk in it. It could be, you know, regular milk, but oat milk works fine. Um, and then you let it boil a little bit where you see the milk bubble and then it's like so creamy and delicious. 
and you throw a little honey in there and you're set, man. You ain't the oatmeal. You know what it is? Christine, my wife is breastfeeding right now too, so uh, the oats help you produce breast milk. So we've been eating a lot of oatmeal as a household. <laughs> Period. That's why. So you gotta get it right, man. You can't play around. You gotta eat right. Um, and have fun with it. But yes, ladies and gentlemen, you know, I want to thank you on behalf of our listening audience. And, um, you know, it's really a pleasure having you and we thank you for this wonderful information. Uh, So yes, to Dr. Folu Balagoon and Dr. Ongi Balagoon, thank you very much. Um, And ladies and gentlemen, they are actually right at the office. They stayed at the office to make sure they had a nice quiet environment um, away from the kids to get this done. So you can get the information. Um, and not have a Monty barging in like she does here with me. Uh, <laughs> she ran upstairs now. So, and also I want to thank you, Miss Basabe, for really just linking us all up and setting us up, um, and all of your colleagues at PCOR and everybody really at the City College of New York and Memorial Sloan Kettering that is working on this stuff. We want to thank you guys so much. Yeah, we're rooting on you guys to keep do- just doing this work. With that said, ladies and gentlemen, this show is of course dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. Harlem, take care of yourself.